Hello there. This is uh, the story of the Old Testament. After a long break, we're back in it. And we are going to uh, see what the Lord has to say to us in 1 Samuel chapter 2 through 11 and Psalms 140 through 144. This is uh, Pastor Spencer for the week of week 29 of the reading plan, July 16th through July 22nd. I hope you're doing well this week, and um, I apologize for the uh, lengthy break in the podcast, but I hope this is encouraging to you, and I hope this, uh, in the upcoming weeks, we can uh, bring back uh, what we've uh, been doing in the past and able to help you as you as you read through the scriptures and study the Old Testament for yourself. So uh, this week we're in 1 Samuel 2 uh, through 11. Um, opening up with the the book of First Samuel, really first of a two part work, First and Second Samuel, then leading into Kings as well, I guess. Um, but so as we as we open up here, we're in the Second Samuel or First Samuel chapter two is uh, Hannah's prayer, Hannah's um, praise, which is a beautiful portion of Scripture, and it um, reminds us of uh, it really it kind of sets the stage for everything that is to come ahead because what you see in that prayer of Hannah that praise of Hannah is that she sees the Lord working in mysterious ways where he brings down the the high up and the exalted and brings them down but those who are low he raises up and at the very end it concludes by pointing us to the power uh, the Lord will exalt the power of his anointed. That's that's his Christ, his Messiah, pointing us ultimately to Jesus, but initially to um, uh, David and then Solomon and, and eventually the true son of David, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so this psalm or this, this prayer of Hannah is ultimately all about Jesus. It's all about him. And that's what Hannah sees from a distance as she sees in the birth of this son of hers, Samuel, who will really be the last of the great judges um, as he leads into the monarchy that will ultimately uh, bring us to Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want to do here is the gospel in First and Second Samuel. This is by V. Phillips Long. And this kind of gives you an overview of these books uh, from a gospel perspective. And then we'll go into some stuff from Spurgeon um, here uh, today as well. So first of all, the gospel in First and Second Samuel by V. Phillips Long. He says this, the books of Samuel are about Israel's kings, Saul and David, who they were, how they came to the throne, and how they fared. But more than that, the books are about the great king, God himself. In the riveting stories of 1 and 2 Samuel, we catch glimpses of who God is, what he does, what life is like with him and without him, and what life can become by his grace and in the power of his spirit. These stories are part of our family history as children of Abraham by faith. They are meant to instruct us on whom the end of the ages has come to teach us endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures to give us hope in order that we may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are gospel-filled stories, unflinchingly honest about sin and society, but saturated with hope of salvation. The two key characters, apart from Samuel the prophet, are both royal sinners. But Saul and David are as different from one another as darkness is from light. For Saul, God does not appear to be a major concern, perhaps not a reality at all. For David, God is his ultimate concern. 
For David, God is the ultimate reality, and he carries ultimate weight. This is what it means to honor God. By the criteria established early in the books, those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed, 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. Saul is destined to fall, and David to rise. Because stories tend to convey their messages indirectly, which is to say we see what characters do and hear what they say, but are seldom offered explicit commentary, they are susceptible to misunderstanding. One common misunderstanding sees Saul as all bad and David as all good. Another reverses the approach and sees Saul as not so bad and David as a little more than an unscrupulous political animal. A careful reading disallows both misinterpretations. Saul is not all bad, at least at first. He exhibits some good faith at the beginning, but because he is devoid of true faith in God, this good faith erodes over time into self-centeredness and suicide. David is certainly not all good, and the accounts of First and Second Samuel make no mention to hide his sins, but David's relationship with God is fundamentally sound. He knows God and prays to God, confesses to God, and finds strength in God. He knows himself to be a sinner, and he knows what it means to be saved by grace. Does he also sense that God and putting him on the throne is about much more than just establishing a limited local kingdom? Surely he has some sense of this, even without full discernment. After all, God's promise to Abraham, which finds numerous echoes in the promise to David, culminates with the prophecy that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. David cannot foresee just how this blessing will work out, but he seems aware that something grand and glorious is underway. Only to us, those privileged to live after the coming of the true king, the Lord's anointed Messiah from David's line, is it given to understand that the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. So that's a very helpful overview, isn't it? As you read these stories of First and Second Samuel, you see Saul, you see Eli's sons fall um, from grace, you see um, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant stolen. You're going to then read about Saul being uh, chosen as the king, and then David later on anointed as king, and the conflict between those two uh, eventually leading to Saul's suicide, the destruction of his family. And then David takes the throne, and we see in him, though, whenever right at the moment that we think, well, David is the perfect king, um, everything seems to to come apart. The wheels seem to come off the carriage. And, um, and so the whole, everything seems to be falling apart all around him as his uh, adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, his lie to the nations, his deceit and hypocrisy before God, all seem to come crumbling and crashing down before him as his good-looking, charismatic son, Absalom, is, is endeavoring to take the throne from him. And this seems to be God's certain judgment against David for all of his sins, even though the Lord had told him through Nathan, the Lord has put away your sins. And yet David is being disciplined, not being judged, but being disciplined for his sins. Because though God's forgiveness and grace brings about a perfect reconciliation with God and a perfect standing with God, it does not erase all the consequences in this life of our sins. We still bear those scars, don't we? And David bore those scars. And eventually, though, that leads to David's uh, son, Struce in Solomon, who will become the king, um, as we see in First Kings uh, eventually. 
So that's kind of what we're seeing here. We're seeing God's work of grace at work in First and Second Samuel. So as you read that, think about those ideas. And also remember, don't, as he points out, David's not all good. We know that. And Saul's not all bad. Um, but remember the differences. And this is one of the key differences, I think, here, is that the difference between Saul and David is God's love, which brings about repentance in the life of David and which does not bring about repentance and faith in the life of Saul. Well, the difference is, is not that they don't sin. Both of them sin. In fact, you could argue that uh, David's sin is, is he sins uh, many different times, right? He's a very unscrupulous uh, guy that actually deserved death. But the difference is, is that David, whenever confronted with his sin, said, I have sinned against the Lord. He was honest before God about his sin. And that's the difference. That's the difference between um, saints and uh, those who are um, believers in Jesus Christ and those who aren't. It's not that one is necessarily morally better than the other. It's that one says what David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay, so we've got uh, there, we've got the gospel. Now I want to talk a little bit about Samuel. And I'm stealing this from uh, Spurgeon. Spurgeon has a book um, uh, called uh, Come Ye Children. It's actually a book he wrote. Um, you can find it online um, about um, for, for people who minister to children, uh, people who are involved in children's ministry. And so he talks about childlike faith, the faith of children in Scripture. And one of the wonderful things about Spurgeon in his ministry was that he was a very big uh, believer in the fact that children, even very young children, um, uh, have true saving faith. And sometimes, uh, particularly in our Baptist tradition, I would say sometimes we can be very suspicious about the faith of little children, which is odd because Jesus says that we're supposed to believe the way they do, not them believe the way we do. And uh, he says, become like them. And so Spurgeon does a really helpful job in this book of helping us think through the faith of children, how we should care for them and lead them and grow them and disciple them in the grace and knowledge that are found in Jesus Christ. So this is actually called Samuel and his teachers because he's talking about Samuel in, the, in this book. So this is Samuel and his teachers from C.H. Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon writes this, In the days of Eli, the word of the Lord was precious, and there was no open vision. It was well when the word did come that one chosen individual had the hearing ear to receive it and the obedient heart to perform it. Eli failed to tutor his sons to be the willing servants and the attentive hearers of the Lord's word. In this he was without the excuse of inability, since he successfully trained the child Samuel in reverent attention to the divine will. Oh, that those who are diligent about the souls of others would look well to their own households. Alas, poor Eli, like many in our day, they made thee keeper of the vineyards, but thine own vineyard thou hast not kept. As often as he looked upon the gracious child Samuel, he must have felt the heartache. When he remembered his own neglected and unchastened sons, and how they had made themselves vile before all Israel, Samuel was the living witness of what grace can work, where children are trained up in God's fear. And Hophni and Phinehas were sad specimens of what parental indulgence will produce in the children of the best of men. Ah, Eli, if thou hadst been as careful with thine own sons as with the son of Hannah, they had not been such men of Belial, nor would Israel have abhorred the offering of the Lord because of the fornication which those priestly reprobates committed at the very door of the tabernacle. Oh, for grace, 
so to nurse our little ones for the Lord, that they may hear the Lord when he shall be pleased to speak unto them. Samuel was blessed with a gracious father, and what is even what and what is even of more importance, he was the child of an eminently holy mother. Hannah was a woman of great poetic talent, as appears from her memorable song. My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoiced in thy salvation. The soul of poetry lives in every line. A brave but chastened spirit breathes in every sentence. Even the Virgin Mary, the most blessed among women, could do no other than use expressions of a similar import. Better still, Hannah was a woman of great prayer. She had been a woman of a sorrowful spirit, but her prayers at last returned to her in blessing, and she had this son given her of the Lord. He was very dear to his mother's heart, and she, therefore, to show her gratitude, and in fulfillment of the vow which in her anguish she had vowed unto the Lord, would consecrate the best thing she had, and presented her son before the Lord in Shiloh, a lesson to all godly parents to see to it that they dedicate their children unto God. How highly favored shall we be if our children shall all be like Isaac, children of the promise. What blessed parents should we be if we saw our children all rise up to call the Redeemer blessed. It has been the lot of some of you to see all your children numbered with the people of God. All your jewels are now in Jehovah's casket. In their early childhood, you gave them up to God and dedicated them to him in earnest prayer. And now the Lord has given you your petition, which you asked of him. I like our friends to hold little services in their own houses when their family is increased. It seems good and profitable for friends to assemble and prayer to be offered that the child may be an inheritor of the promises, that he may be early called by mighty grace and received into the divine family. You will perceive that as Samuel was put under the care and tuition of Eli, Eli had instructed him in some degree in the spirit of religion. But he does not appear to have explained to him the peculiar form and nature of those special and particular manifestations of God which were given to his prophets. Little dreaming, I dare say, that Samuel would ever be himself the subject of them. On that memorable night, when towards morning the lamp of God was about to go out, the Lord cried, Samuel, Samuel. The young child was not able to discern, for he had not been taught that it was the voice of God and not the voice of man. That he had learned the spirit of true religion is indicated by his instantaneous obedience, and the habit of obedience became a valuable guide to him in the perplexities of that eventful hour. He runs to Eli and says, Here I am, for thou didst call me. And though this is three times repeated, yet he seemed nothing loath to leave his warm bed and run to his foster father, to see if he could get him any comfort that his old age might require during the night, or otherwise do his bidding a sure sign that the child had acquired the healthy principle of obedience, though he did not understand the mystery of the prophetic call. Better far to have the young heart trained to bear the yoke than to fill the childish head with knowledge, however valuable. An ounce of obedience is better than a ton of learning. When Eli perceived that God had called the child, he taught him his first little prayer. It is a very short one, but it is very full. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Let the Christian parent explain to the child what prayer is. Tell him that God answers prayer, direct him to the Savior, and then urge him to express his desires in his own language, both when he rises and when he goes to rest. Gather the little ones around your knee and listen to their words, suggesting to them their needs and reminding them of God's gracious promise. You will be amazed, and I may add sometimes amused too, but you will be frequently surprised at the expressions they will use, the confessions they will make, the desires they will utter, 
And I am certain that any Christian person standing within earshot and listening to the simple prayer of a little child earnestly asking God for what it thinks it wants would never afterwards wish to teach a child a form, but would say that as a matter of education to the heart, the extemporaneous utterance was infinitely superior to the best form, and that the form should be given up forever. However, do not, do not let me teach too sweepingly. If you must teach your child to say a form of prayer, at least take care that you do not teach him to say anything which is not true. If you teach your children a catechism, mind that it is a thoroughly scriptural, or you may train them up to tell falsehoods. Teach him nothing but the truth as it is in Jesus, so far as he can learn it, and pray the Holy Spirit to write that truth upon his heart. Better to supply no signpost to the young traveler than to mislead him with false ones. The light of a wrecker's beam is worse than darkness. Teach our youth to make untruthful statements in religious matters, and atheism can scarcely do more to corrupt their minds. Formal religion is a deadly foe to vital godliness. If you teach a catechism or if you teach a form of prayer to your little ones, let it be all true. And as far as possible, never put into a child's mouth a word which the child cannot truly say from his heart. We must be more careful about truthfulness and correctness in speech. If a child looked out of a window at anything going on in the street and then told you that he saw it from the door, you ought to make him tell the tale over again so as to impress upon him the necessity of being truthful in every respect. Especially in things connected with religion, keep your child back from any form until he has a right to be a partaker of it. Never encourage him to come to the Lord's table unless you really believe that he, there is a work of grace in his heart. For why should you lead him to eat and drink his own damnation? Insist with all your heart that religion is a solemn reality, not to be mimicked or pretended to, and seek to bring the child to understand that there is no vice more abhorrent before God than hypocrisy. Do not make your young Samuel a young hypocrite, but train up your darling to speak before the Lord with a deep solemnity and a conscientious truthfulness, and let him never dare to say, either in answer to a catechismal question or as a form of prayer, anything which is not positively true. If you must have a form of prayer, let it not express such desires as a child never had, but let it be adapted to his young capacity. It is said of the Reverend John Angel Jones, James, like most men who have been eminent and honored in the Church of Christ, he had a godly mother who was wont to take her children to her chamber and with each separately to pray for the salvation of their souls. This exercise, which fulfilled her own responsibility, was molding the character of her children, and most, if not all of them, rose up to call her blessed. When did such means ever fail? I beseech you, the teachers of the Sunday school, though I scarcely need to do so, for I know how zealous you are in this matter. As soon as ever you see the first peep of day in your children, encourage their young desires. Believe in the conversion of children as children. Believe that the Lord can call them by his grace, can renew their hearts, can give them a part and a lot among his people long before they reach the prime of life. Now that is uh, some really helpful and thought-provoking material um, from Spurgeon there as we think about the raising up of children um, in the faith. And I think it's an encouragement to us to, um, you know, as a parent right now with younger children, to consistently encourage them to obedience to the Lord, to trust his promises, to take his word seriously, um, to fight against hypocrisy and simple externality in religion, to remember that religion, true religion, transforms the heart and mind and lives of us. And that's important for me to be reminded of myself and for you to be reminded of 
and for our children to be reminded of as we're growing them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Well, the last thing I want to read, um, I'm not sure, I don't have this here. I'm assuming this is probably from Spurgeon. It could be from Alistair Begg, um, but it's uh, one last devotion here to, to, to help you think through things here. It's from 1 Samuel seven twelve. till now the Lord has helped us. Um, and so let's close with this and uh, as we wrap up this week's reading through the Old Testament. The phrase till now is like a hand pointing in the direction of the past. Twenty years or seventy and still, till now the Lord has helped us. Through poverty, through wealth, through sickness, through health, at home, abroad, on the sea, or on the land, on the sea, in honor, in dishonor, in perplexity, in joy, in trial, in triumph, in prayer, in temptation. Till now the Lord has helped us. We delight to look down a long avenue of trees. It is delightful to gaze from end to end of the long vista, a sort of verdant temple with its branching pillars and its arches of leaves. In the same way, look down the long aisles of your years at the green branches of mercy overhead and the strong pillars of loving kindness and faithfulness that support your joys. Are there no birds singing in those branches? Surely there must be many, and they all sing of mercy received till now. But the word also points forward. For when a man reaches a certain point and writes till now, he is not yet at the end. He still has a distance to go. More trials, more joys, more temptations, more triumphs, more prayers, more answers, more toils, more strength, more fights, more victories. And then he faces sickness, old age, disease, death. Is it over then? No. Then there is wakening in Jesus' likeness. Thrones, harps, songs, psalms, white raiment, the face of Jesus, the company of saints, the glory of God, the fullness of eternity, the infinity of bliss. Be of good courage, believer, and with grateful confidence raise your banner. For he who hath helped thee hitherto will help thee all thy journey through. When read in light of heaven, how glorious and marvelous a prospect will the till now provide for your grateful eye. And that is a good way to end. Till now, the Lord has helped us and he will help us to the end. I hope that this is an encouragement to you. And I hope that as you read First and Second Samuel, that you will see Jesus Christ in the pages of this text, that you will see him um, hidden, but also revealed in, his, in the hand of the Father, working through it all to bring us and to bring these original readers and to bring us today to the foot of the cross where our king was crucified for us. May God bless you, and, uh, and I'll see you next week.